the idea that what lights us up and turns us on and arouses us is something we should follow. That is the indicator of a yes. Am I turned on by this thing? Am I inspired? Am I lit up? Am I excited? I should do that thing. Welcome to The Pleasure Ethic. I'm Javier Cortez, joined by my co-host, Elena Letourneau. And today is our first episode of this new podcast project. So maybe we should first talk about who we are. So Elena, who are you? What's your favorite color? What's your astrological <laughs> sign? Your zip code? All Uh-oh. that good stuff. All right. Let's see. Who am I? Um, my favorite color, colors, blue, orange, red. If you have more than one favorite color, that means you can't have three favorite colors, Elena. (laughs) Why not? I guess you can. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a favorite color. I like jewel tones. How about that? Jewel tone, Elena. Um, Yeah, (laughs) jewel tone, Elena. Um, I'm an Aries. Me Uh, too. I didn't know that. You see, this is funny. There's there's basic information we do not know about each other. Oh wait, you do know I'm in there. I knew that. Yeah, I forgot. I track those. I track that. Uh oh, don't be scared, to Aries. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about introducing myself, and it's like really like where to start. But I guess I'll start with the fact that I work as a sex and relationship coach, and I have been doing that for ten years. Ended up here after pursuing uh, counseling psychology and a master's degree in that and a master's degree also in uh, language literacy and social sociocultural studies. So I've had a lot of education, but I've also had a very diverse work life experience. Um, And the main thing that I'm interested in is like people and how we work like at every level. And I'm super fascinated by the mirror of intimate and social relationships, which mm. I'll just leave that for now because I'm we'll we'll get into that in many different ways, I'm sure. No, and I think that's where both of us really coalesce and come together because I'm very much in- interested in people. Granted, I don't work in the same field that you do. I'm a college professor. I teach writing. More or less previous to that, I was a journalist for give or take five to seven years. But yeah, what brings me to this pod, I think what brings us together is we're, I would say for the both of us, we're very curious people and the psychology and the inner working of, you know, our individual humanity, other people's humanity is very fascinating, especially when it comes to things like dating, sex and sexuality, addiction. You know, all the good juicy stuff, not, mm-hmm. not none of the boring stuff. We like the taboo stuff that, or, or the things yep. that are made out to be taboo that probably shouldn't be taboo. Exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah. because they are taboo, they are the topics that have the most to uh, reveal about us. And I think also the most, they're the richest place to work in terms of all the things we need to be relationally competent and literate. 
And they need to be demystified in a lot of ways because these these yes. things are filled with a lot of lies and half-truths and misinformation about who we are in relationship to these things, but who we are to ourselves and why we, you know, use sex or use drugs, use other people. There, there's not a lot of truth behind why people do those things or how they relate to those things too. And I think that's where this podcast is really going to be really interesting to explore. But before we get off track for the first time in this <laughs> podcast history, let's talk about a little bit how we met because it, 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 it's a very interesting story. story. <laughs> um, yeah. Should I, should mm. I begin first? Because I guess the impetus for why we met was because of a project I was doing. So back in, what year was this, Elena? 2018, was it? 2019. 2019. 2019. Okay, so I just graduated, and I was still working in journalism, but I was soon going to transition to grad school to become a teacher where I'm at right now. So in 2019, and I had a remote job, I decided to travel the country, the United States, and write about the people that I met on dating apps, Tinder, Bumble men and women across the board, non-binary. And I wrote about 30 people for this blog called Conversations Over Coffee. And you and mm -hmm. I met on, was it Bumble? Do you it remember? Was Bumble. It was Bumble. Yep. You and I met on Bumble. And I was. it was actually the day I was leaving Santa Fe to go to Phoenix, the next city I was going to write about people in. And we met up in a coffee shop in Albuquerque. On, yes, we did. I think like a weekday morning. Uh, I can't remember the coffee shop. Can you? Zendo. Zendo, yes. Zendo. Yeah. Damn, you got a great memory. Zendo well, coffee it's one shop. Of my, they, they have a Turkish latte that I love. It's one of my favorite oh, cafes. Okay, I didn't know that. And they're so, an art space and a an, yeah. like, community hub. Yeah. Very cool coffee shop. I remember that. So we meet up that morning. And we had maybe two hours, was it? An hour and a half? I think it was, yeah, it was a couple hours. Yeah, where we traded, a, um, you know, about two hours just talking about sex and sexuality, drugs, addiction, relationships, dating in? culture. Yes, absolutely. Go for it. I want to jump in and say what was happening for me on my side. Yes, right? now, it was now 2019. you Yeah. Okay, little aside. I'm going to do a little aside because... Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that I love to do when I'm working with a new couple is I like to get the origin story. And so this is us, you know, we're telling mm -hmm. our origin story. I was four years out of a 16 year marriage and I had moved back to the Bay Area from and was visiting Albuquerque. Um, and I was I was doing the dating apps thing for the first time which was wild because they did not exist when I was single before mm -hmm. and it was personal and professional. Right. So I wanted, I definitely wanted to date and meet people, but I was also doing it so that I had that experience to share professionally and with my clients who are also dating. So I tried, you know, Tinder, Bumble, OkCupid, and I swiped right on you because of what your profile said. You said, Oh yes. I mean, you were, you were cute. And you have a great Thank smile. You. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you said, uh, I'm not here to hook up, I think. I'm mm -hmm. here because I write about people I meet on dating apps. And I was mm -hmm. like, hell yeah. Because 
this is probably a good moment to say too, like you were significantly younger than me. Yeah. Let's, so let's felt, talk about the I age difference. <laughs> I think you were 25. That's what you said on your profile at the time. Yeah. Four 20, years yeah. Ago. 2019. Yeah. 25. Yeah. I was 49 and I'm pretty sure I lied about my age on the app though. Just coming clean about that. I don't, I don't remember to be honest. I don't. Well, I'm being honest right now. So I was 49 mm-hmm. in 2019. And yeah, that age difference was, uh, I was like, yeah, he's way too young for me. Or maybe a little bit too young for me. <laughs> and but what I, what you said just totally struck a chord with me. And I was like, and I love a good conversation. I was like, yeah. we are going to have a good conversation. And and we did like we hit it off. It was just it was so nice to match that way without the expectations of sex and romance and just mm-hmm. like, who is this person? He's interested in me. I'm interested in him. And then, yeah, we met at Zendo and couldn't stop talking. L- let me ask you this. When we we're talking on Bumble, did you tell me that you're a sex and relationship coach? I can't remember. Ah, uh, good question. Yeah, that was on my profile, actually. I put yeah. that on my profile, um, honestly, in some ways to be provocative because I wanted to... I wanted to see how people reacted to that and what kind mm-hmm. of, yeah, it was, it was an interesting. Yeah. Because interesting. like, I, obviously I, like I, I can't recall it four years later, but if, if I could like step back into like where I was, I probably saw that and I was like, Oh, please. I would love to talk to you. Please yeah. swipe right on me. Please. <laughs> You're the exact person yeah. I want to talk to. Um, That's awesome. Yes. You know, because it was just yeah, so like significant. what you do was so on the nose in so many ways with what I was doing at the time. Um, Right. So it's, it's because again, I wrote about 30 people not all of them were sex and relationship coaches and a lot of just regular people on the apps, just like anybody in their twenties, thirties, forties, just looking to date or to have sex or to do whatever. Um, And so you and I had a a much more narrowed view conversation because it was just those interests automatically aligned in so many more ways than with this guy named Leo in Dallas, who, who was a operatic singer, you know, who I went to Chipotle with, you know, we had a very different Mm -hmm. conversation as opposed to what you and I did. And so just thinking about that again, like, there is definitely a part of, I think that's probably why I fit you into my morning. Like, okay, this is the last time I can meet this morning before I go to Phoenix. Can we, can we do this in Albuquerque? And it turned out to be a great decision because uh, we're still friends to this day. Um, We obviously still talk to this day. We've seen each other, I think a few times after the fact and granted I live in El Paso, Texas, you're in the Bay area. We're nowhere near close each other. And it's kind of been like the same conversation with our current life update. Every time we do talk, it always ends up being about sex and relationships and addiction, all these things that bring us together for this podcast. Yeah. I think what, you know, what struck me most about you when we met was the quality of conversation for sure. You know, like it was easy, like we just got right into a groove even though it was quite early in the morning, I remember for me. Oh, and I also was excited to kind of be interviewed. And I love that you wrote mm. a piece about me. Um, that was 
kind of leads up to this too, you know, that we did, we did, we didn't just have a conversation. It turned into a post on, you know, part of your project and you ask really good questions and you get really good things out of me. Well, I appreciate that. That's the the journalist in me that I'm always going to try to strive to to keep. But I think one last thing for me when it comes to our dynamic, you you are, although we don't talk that much and although we don't see each other that often, you are one of my more genuine close friends for the simple fact that you're somebody that I can share very intimate things about myself and you have always done and not not even intentionally but just by who you are have always reduced my shame about the things in my mm. life i i have friends that i've known for a much longer time than i've known you that don't know half of the things that i've gotten up to even even in these past 4 years so elena knows a significant amount of detail about my personal life and who i am more so than a lot of people that I am close to in my life. But again, it comes back to that idea or that notion or that task of reducing shame. And that hits me right where I live. Mm -hmm. That like probably would go down as one of, you know, as a part of my mission. Absolutely. That feels really, really good to hear and kind of gets to what I was going to ask too, like what kind of back to the, the origin story and how I coach couples in an initial session. And one of the questions I ask is what strike, what struck you about the person when you first met or first started getting to know each other. And usually, you know, it's in a sexual or romantic context, but since we're doing it here, what struck you? I mean, you kind of just answered it, but that in that first meeting. Well, I would say over time, as I've gotten to know you, that, that aspect of reducing shame, I'll call you or I'll send you something and your immediate Mm. response is it's not that bad or it's okay. Why are you, you know, coloring it with all this negative? Yeah. Yeah. And then I think about it and it's like, uh, oh yeah, I don't have to feel shitty about this. But I think when I first met you and, and I've jokingly called you this, but you're like a unicorn to me. And and Mm -hmm. I think this is really where our, Although we are very much aligned on a lot of things, I think, from a sociopolitical perspective and in, in our opinions on drugs and sex and sexuality and all these things, we are from divergent uh, backgrounds. We, we couldn't yes. be probably even more different. Um, and it's not to say that I really grew up embedded in the in the culture that I live in, but for people who don't know El Paso, Texas, it's what I would call a conservative catholic culture it's a blue city in a red state but from a cultural perspective uh, the way children are raised in in two family households predominantly mexican mexican american households there are a lot of fundamentalist conservative catholic beliefs that are centered around gender expression sexuality addiction all these things and so meeting you and talking to you for that first time, it's like, wow, here's this person I agree with on all of these things that mm-hmm. nobody really in my city really thinks that way or, or states things that way. And so it's like it's it's like meeting a unicorn because it's like, where have you been all my life? So you just are diametrically opposed from the general sentiment that imbues the culture in the city that I live in for the most part. 
it's funny that you say that, you know, because I came from, oh, yeah, diametrically opposed. I'm sure we could be more different, but, you know, given where I mean, I grew up in a hippie cult in San Francisco. Yeah, just say right? it. <laughs> like I, I was born in 1970 and was raised in almost stereotypical hippie post 60s Indian guru homeschooled, lots of drugs, uh, lots of partying, lot, lots of things we, again, we might get into more another time. But uh, when I was 24, I left because I was really like over it and moved to Albuquerque and lived there for 20 years where I was predominantly really a member of queer community out there. And so, you know, everything that you're saying, concert, like that's the opposite to me. Conservative mm -hmm. Catholic, two parent families, you know, thank God for a blue city in a red state. But yeah, that is. And I come from a place where I think I'm unique in a lot of ways, but also it's a lot more common the way I think and the progressive and kind of radical ideas are more common in the Bay Area, for sure. For sure. Albuquerque yes. too. Albuquerque queer community, for sure. Yeah. And then especially in comparison to El Paso. And it was really interesting growing up in my household because so my mother is Puerto Rican. My father is Mexican, but my father is more whitewashed. He's not culturally Mexican. So we grew up with a lot more of a Puerto Rican kind of ethnic influence on our childhood. And that was also because my grandparents who were from Puerto Rico lived in El Paso when, when they were still here breathing. And that imbued a lot of like my identity with, I identified a lot more as Puerto Rican than Mexican. And another thing is we weren't a hyper-religious family. We sporadically went to church. So we did not belong to any sect. We were not Catholic. We were not, I guess we were Christian, but you know, we really weren't. Um, and that's not how we were raised. So in this household that I grew up in, I was really raised to be antithetical to really the culture that I lived in and made to be curious. But then you step outside and you see your friends or their peers or their parents, and it's the exact opposite of that. But I think that's why I never really connected with that in my city, which is kind of a very lonely feeling. And then bringing it back to meeting you, I think that's why I had such a strong connection with you and really have held on to this relationship from my end. I can't talk to all of my friends about these things that I'm experiencing because then it would have to be explained in a way to to yeah. to extract some empathy and understanding for them. I did this bad thing, but let me explain why I'm not a bad person versus you I can say I did this thing and we can and talk I, and about I'm just, it. And we can just talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, there's so much in that. You know, I think that does that does make me different from where I come from, you know, because in contrast to your experience, you know, when I say, you know, my upbringing was predominantly white, um, white people in the hippie cult, not a hundred percent, but definitely majority and very liberal. I would even say some verging on libertarian. And one of the reasons that I left California was for what I call liberal fascism. <laughs> You know, may not yeah. be a, like politically totally accurate uh, statement. I'm sure people could break that down and prove me wrong. But what I mean by it is that there is this liberal 
agenda or or liberal speak out here that is like and it and it comes with we are right you know we are better than and this is the right way to do it and always being able to say the right thing but also not really believing or maybe voting or acting in ways that line up with that so there's this insidiousness about it that i can't stand it's dishonesty um and I'm really interested in people as they are. And I think, you know, hearing you talk about how you can just talk to me and I'm not not going to judge you or collude in the shame with you or fix you, you know, we're just going to sort of sit in it together and be there together in it and figure our way out or through or whatever needs to happen or not. I think you and I are still talking because our relationship sort of epitomizes what I value in relationships, which is genuine connection, genuine interest, deep conversation, like real, honest, raw, and kind of without expectations too. Like there's no, you know, we are, we are in relationship because we want to be, it's not defined or forced or filled with expectations, obligations, and disappointments. (laughs) Yeah. It's just really natural and, you know, organic and reciprocal. I I think that's a great place to put a bow on it. Really no expectations yeah. of each other. We meet each other where we're at. Yes. Per- perfectly said. So transitioning a bit, let, let's get yeah. into the impetus of this podcast. Why are we doing this outside of just an, <laughs> another excuse to talk to each other in a more routine way? <laughs> because I've been craving collaborators and I texted you and said, I need people to collaborate with. And you texted me back in all caps, I'll collaborate with you. Yes. And I think that the timing, I mean, it's not like we haven't talked about this before, the idea of it in one way or another. And I think it was just one of those, you know, the stars aligned and it was like moment and like you answered with the kind of enthusiasm that I needed. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And beyond you and me, like the reason that I want to do a podcast, I've been thinking about it is because I really have a lot to say. (laughs) I have a lot to say. And there's a lot like I feel this, this almost like pressure of wanting to get what I have learned in my personal life and my like really very varied life experience and in my professional experience the last 10 years, what I've learned about how what people need in terms of intimacy and sex and how sex and sexuality and eroticism really work, how that ties in to you know, and then like we were talking about before our relationships, everything is relationships and addiction falls into there that. And I really love writing and I, and I call myself a writer now and I do a lot of writing, but really conversation is my medium. I've been saying mm-hmm. this for years. It's like when I am engaged with another person in conversation in the moment with whatever is up and relevant right now, that's when I come alive. And like, I really most often make my points best and say what I want to say best in conversation. So yeah, that's some of my answer for why. What's yeah, yours? I, I think this is both a creative outlet. We both kind of seek that and crave that. And it is a different medium to articulate ourselves within because we, we both kind of identify with the when it comes to our creative side as writers, we like to write, we like to express ourselves through that medium, but this is, this is composition in a different mode in a different medium. Yeah. Um, Just like I like to tell my students. (laughs) 
But really, and for me, from from my perspective, part of this impetus is not to make this about you, but in some ways to make this about you because you're a sex and relationship coach who's been working with couples for over a decade and you have a lifelong history of experience with the things that you coach and talk about in the first place. And I think that you have equitable, restorative, justifiable opinions on things when it comes to our relationship to X, Y, and Z that I think people need to hear about or should hear about or would like to hear about. And I kind of view myself more just like the person that gives shape to those ideas or, you know, the person that drives the vehicle, but you are the vehicle of, of this podcast. And I'm the person who dislikes to ask curious questions, but also step in with, you know, my own experiences, my own relationship to things, because although I'm 29, I've I've lived a life of debauchery in my 20s that I'm trying to <laughs> sew up really nice, put a bow on and have a nice run through my 30s. Knock on wood. So, and you so also that's, think about this yeah, stuff. Like yeah. You care about it and you think about it and you invest in it. In a way, I am your first audience member. I'm I'm just the audience <laughs> member that gets to, you know, shape it, as I like to say. But generally speaking, this is a podcast about relationships. When people ask if they need a quick 90-second summation, it's a podcast about our relationship to ourselves, to others, to substances, to sex. Again, all these taboo things that need to be demystified and talked about in a restorative, shameless way. I think that's really what we're trying to go for with this podcast. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I think just to tag, to add one more thing to what you said is I think one is I work with couples and individuals. So just putting mm-hmm. that, I have a lot of individual clients also and um, kind of, yeah, like support people in. When I work with individuals, often it is supporting someone in their relationship with themselves, but also their relationship with dating or partnership and sex and what I like to refer to as disordered relationships, which I think a lot of things can fall under, you know, addiction is a disordered relationship, codependency is a disordered relationship, and there are relationship to behaviors too, you know, like I have clients with eating disorders. And I have clients with other mental health kinds of challenges, anxiety, depression. And the thing about sex and relationships that's really important to me in my work is that there are actually skills for these things and we don't get taught them. You know, you talk about demystifying, like one of the first things we have to demystify is that the shit isn't actually magical. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't, you don't meet the right person and then everything works out. And we're still running on that myth. Sex and intimacy and relationships take skills and knowledge. And I want to put more of that out into the world, those skills and knowledge. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to circle back to your, your liberal fascism comment. And Mm -hmm. what we're not trying to do here is tell people that our opinions are right and you should listen because our opinions are right. And and what I love about 
you coming in to this podcast and this new medium of composing and talking to people is that you're not giving these fascist opinions on how to moralize your sex life or your relationship. We're, we're in a lot of ways talking about rooted, embedded, grounded, scientific processes that go into how we tackle things like addiction, tackle things like intimacy issues. And when it comes to sex and intimacy and relationships, I think, well, and our, and our concept of ourselves, you know, one of the things I was thinking as I was listening to you is like, you know, my, my agenda, if I have one is to help people become the best versions of themselves, mm-hmm. not become me, not become you, not become some yeah religious ideal mm-hmm. or, you know, kinky ideal even, or queer ideal or straight ideal or any of that. It's who are you and how can you be the best version of yourself and how can you navigate the world of sex and intimacy and relationships in a way that's really aligned with who you are and brings the most benefit and the least harm to everyone involved. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way of of stating it. More benefit, less harm. And yes, and not doing it in a way that is dogmatic or again, fascist, um, you know, within within that nice liberal tone. I will say I definitely have strong opinions too. And I will, you know, and I have, but again, like I have so much varied experience. Like I've, I've, I love to see it from multiple angles. But I think the the distinction, and I think when people listen to this podcast, they'll know when we're giving our opinions. And then they'll know when you're making a statement about, this is how this thing is taught about masturbation. And this is why it's harmful. This is why it's false. This is why it's not like imbued in something that is substantive. And I think people will, will understand that distinction because we'll certainly have our opinions that are diverging from each other where we come together and agree on. But really when it comes down to just demystifying these fundamental truths that we believe about these things, that's one they'll certainly know. Got this somewhere, but there I've, one of the things, the messages that I love too, is like, take what resonates and leave the rest. Mm-hmm. You know, if it works for you, great. If it doesn't, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> that's a an interesting thing when we get into the politics of sex and sexuality gender expression all those things ultimately our worldview is going to dictate how far we take those expressions or how big or nuanced those opinions are and yes for somebody yes. to come on and let's say with a deeply fundamentalist Christian perspective, which I doubt we'll ever get that type of listener. But if we (laughs) were to, there's only so much that they're going to hear about. This is how you can express yourself as a male, or this is how you can express yourself as a female that they're going to latch onto or to take in. So this is still something, again, where I feel like we're neither of us really care to change other people's opinions. And we probably came about that very different ways. I know from my teenage years and early 20s, I tried to argue the Jesus out of people if I could. Um, <laughs> I don't know what your experience was like to get to the point where it's you you just try to meet somebody where they're at. But that's more or less what we're trying to do is yes. meet people where they're at. 
and in no way trying to tell somebody what they need to do with their expression of their gender, sexuality, their opinions on drugs and alcohol, things like that. Okay, so let's move on. Let's talk about the pleasure ethic. This is a a title, a name, a phrase that you've rolled with for some time now. Can you give somewhat of a definition or explain the the meaning behind that? Yeah, well, I chose it for the name of my practice, my coaching practice. And I think first off, I just liked the feel of it. You know, I like I like the implication that pleasure is ethical. It started there. And I think there's a lot of movement in our culture right now toward like away from grind culture and away from, you know, being valued only for our productivity and more achieving more balance. You know, whether that's um you know, rest or sleep or pleasure. And um, it was funny, actually, I I didn't have a definition for a long time. And then I was in conversation with another one of my people, I call her my bonus niece. (laughs) Uh, She and I was telling it to her. And all of a sudden, I it was like, Oh, my God, here's the definition. So I'm actually going to read it from my website, which is the pleasureethic.com and talk about a little bit So my formal definition is the principle of a pleasure ethic is that pleasure, that which lights us up, turns us on, is an integrity and alignment with who we are in any given moment and time of life is intrinsically virtuous and worthy of pursuit. So in some ways, I'm putting it in contrast to the work ethic, right, which has been so pervasive. And it's like working hard and suffering is noble and you work hard enough and ultimately you'll get your reward which I think is a crock of shit. Like that's not life. Like we have cycles, right? We don't work our whole lives and then get some reward when we're old or dead. That just seems super sad. So the idea that pleasure is just as valid and virtuous and ethical puts up against like kind of what we're socialized around in general, that pleasure is somehow gratuitous, you know, or or, or hedonistic. Right. Very connected to hedonistic, which it's so funny that you, it's great that you brought that up because I'm always trying to be like, what am I talking about when I say pleasure? I don't mean just hedonism, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, like what's, there's nothing wrong with hedonism unless it causes harm, right? Like maybe we can talk about harm in terms of these things. And what, what I mean when I say pleasure is kind of like, you know, alignment and it's also what arouses us. So that, that's a huge piece. And it's also a huge piece in sex and relationship coaching. Like, the idea that what lights us up and turns us on and arouses us is something we should follow. That is the indicator of a yes. You know, like, am I turned on by this thing? Am I inspired? Am I lit up? Am I excited? I should do that thing. Instead Mm of most of my life, I've been really lit up and into thinking about sex and drugs and relationships and people and our psychology. And also let's go ahead and say it trauma and how much of that, you know, how, how we're made and much of my life, the internal voices were like, stop obsessing on this and get to work, you know, Mm -hmm. figure out how to get a job, do something productive, do something serious, you know? And Mm -hmm. I finally was like, actually, I'm going to follow this and see where it goes And I'm like doing the work I'm supposed to do. And all that obsessing in my whole life is totally paying off now. And finally, I think the other thing that the pleasure ethic means to me is that 
you know, it's connected to, it's connected to the idea that let's lead pleasurable lives, you know, and we, we are inherently creative. This is a, this is more of a social aspect of it, but maybe I'll go back and uh, read the rest of the definition, which is an ethic of pleasure values creativity and imagination alongside achievement and the journey, at least as much as the outcome. It elevates relationships over profit and production, joy and ease over unnecessary suffering, authenticity and vulnerability over measured performance, experimentation and exploration over anxious grasping for certainty. So that's, that's all pretty dense, but I think that, you know, we could, we could get into the semantics of what we, we could go down rabbit holes on the semantics. And I'm definitely using pleasure in a very specific way here, like Mm -hmm. an ethic of pleasure, which means too, that things don't always feel good. You know, joy and ease over unnecessary suffering acknowledges that there is suffering, you know, and one of the things too, like I've thought about is like, you know, sometimes when you're grieving and you cry like that in some way feels really good. It's necessary, Mm. right? We need to cry. We need to feel all the things that we feel. We need, you know, it's not, um, it's not a Pollyanna perspective. It's like, it's not the goal here is not to be happy or feel good all of the time, but is to be in alignment. And the thing about the journey, as much as the outcome and experimentation and imagination, all of that, actually one of the, that came out of an experience I had that was actually like related to sex and feeling very performance oriented in sex, you know, and that like at the end of sex, did they come? Did they make their partner come? Like this is the the measured performance that determines a successful interaction mm. instead of the joy and the pleasure of the, of the journey of the, the contact between bodies and the touch and the heat and the, whatever it was that was going on. That was to me, like, that's the pleasurable part. Not the gamification of sex. How many times did I make this person come? How fast did I last? Like all these stats that go along with sex today. And take us really out of the moment and out of the connection. And really, honestly, like bring a capitalist work ethic to something that is ultimately (laughs) should be pleasurable. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I, I mean, that's my, I mean, that's, there's a lot. There's a lot in there and it is, you know, it's kind of, you know, my, my founding philosophy, right? Um, yeah, which I'm sure we will talk more about, but that's my little, no, that's for the sure. beginning spiel on it. And, yeah. and, and I totally get it where you're coming from, from my perspective, because I understand within our friendship, you've tried to give me these insights for my things on, yes. you know, how do I, how do I go about my sex life in a way that is, you know, I, I want the pleasure. I want the things that I seek out, but I want to be in control of myself. And how do I do this without shame? How do I talk to my partner about these things? Yes. All of and these that's things. that's where the experimentation, exploration, and imagination come in. Because that's another huge piece. It's like, this idea that we're supposed to know everything about ourselves or Mm -hmm. about sex or whatever it is ahead of time. We don't know. We have to experimenting and exploring is what we do to find out what it is that we like and how we get good at the things that we do like. 
Does that make sense? No, we got to be fucking scientists is what you're telling you. We need a hypothesis. <laughs> yes. We need we need all those things. <laughs> we need to follow the scientific process to figure out. And, and it's true. Yeah. Instead of reverting back to these insular dogmatic ideas, notions, texts, Bibles about this is what you are as a human. This is how you relate to the opposite sex. And this is how you go about things we, yeah. there, where there's zero science or zero curiosity built into those notions. Um, so in well, a way, curiosity. we have to be our own scientists. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds silly, but really you have to run a series of tests and come up with various ideas to come to certain conclusions about things. I'm totally butchering the scientific process. You can tell, you can <laughs> I, tell I'm an I... English teacher. Um <laughs> But I'm definitely yeah. not a scientist that way either, because I usually end up my hypotheses come after my experimentation. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what's this? Let's poke it and see what happens. And then yeah, I'll yeah. develop a theory about it. You're working backwards. I'm working backwards. Yeah. yeah. But but generally forwards. speaking, yeah, you, you need that expert. You need to ask those questions. You need to come up with experiments. You need to conduct those experiments and then come to conclusions and then keep retesting and retesting and retesting and retesting. And for some people, they they have a really good clue on it, on who they are and how they relate to those things, it's especially with something as complex as sexuality, even though it could be very simple too. But then you have you know people like me who are leaving their 20s and soon to be into their 30s and I've certainly made a lot of mistakes or to put that in a less shameful way. <laughs> I've ran a lot of experiments that have failed. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, you All know, right. Well, yeah. I've run a lot of experiments. I will accept the failure. Yeah. We can we can break down in another podcast. And sure. I'll yes. See if I agree with you or not on that. But I mean, yeah. what what that's an, I mean, it's interesting. And we could, we could I could totally go on a tangent here about what failure means. But that's why the pleasure ethic also encompasses this idea of experimentation and exploration, because the, is there really failure in that process? Like, I think the failure in the process is that we don't know how to navigate the process. That's where the skills and learning come in, you know, most of like, so when we, for example, have an experience that doesn't feel good. You know, what most people feel is like, that was a failure. That was a bad thing. I have shame. That was bad. Instead of I tried something and it didn't turn out great. And maybe me, I might try it again just to make sure. Mm -hmm. But we treat sex and sexual experiences like they're so high stakes. If we try something and we don't like it, what often happens is that we feel shame. And I'm, I'm really talking about nothing clearly violating or non-consensual mm -hmm. experimenting. You're in a safe relationship. The connection is safe in all the ways, but you do something that you end up feeling not so great about after, or it was weird or messy or it hurt or something happened that triggered something. And then it becomes a bad experience, a failed experience. You might feel like you're bad or the other person is bad. And my analogy for it just, you know, again, keeping it in a light level, I'm not talking about anything that's truly harm or violating here. You know, it'd be like going into a restaurant and ordering something off the menu. You order a piece of food off the menu and you're like, "Ugh, I really didn't like that. You don't have a shame spiral afterward. You just don't fucking order that again. 
you know, or you order something and you're like, oh, I don't know. That was a little weird. I'm not sure about that texture. You're like, you go back the next time and you order it again. You're actually like, no, I do like it or not. You confirm that you don't, but you, we can experiment without shame. It makes a ton of sense. And it really, I think, speaks to, again, within our society, this gamification of life yes. where everything's about winning and losing and our- Failing and succeeding. Yes. And, and failing is is this, it's this very black and white thing where if we change our relationship to it, where do we learn the most? When we fail, when exactly. we fuck up, when we do the wrong thing. And yep. the failure teaches us so much, but we don't really have a lot of that within our society because we're constantly counting up wins and losses. So we don't know how to fail. Yeah. I also just want to tack on at the end here that we also learn when we don't fail. Like we also learn from the good things, but we're so deeply obsessed and shame and with shame in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, and focused on failure. Like, yes, we learn from what feels like failure. We also learn from what feels like success. And I don't think that we get nourished enough from that. I don't think we put enough energy on the things that like, oh my God, I did this thing. Later today, I'll probably feel like I'm not being productive enough in my life or doing enough on my business. I'll forget that I just spent my afternoon doing my first podcast, that this, this is work that is also pleasurable and it counts. It's good. So, so there you have it. Even, even the person who's (laughs) offering these words of wisdom needs to practice them. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Keep it is an ongoing practice. I totally agree. And I think that's a good wrap on our first episode. And like we've already talked about, we're going to delve into so much more Mm. now that we got the intros out of the way, the who, what, when, where, and whys. Elena, it was great talking to you. Great talking with you, Javier, as always.